0: I'm very pleased to say that Owen Shears has made it in time. Um, the writer of To Provide All People. I'm sorry, I had a blank. Do come, do come to the floor. We have Pip Broughton, the director, and two members of the very prestigious cast Suzanne Packer and Eve Miles. Owen, how are you doing? You just arrived. You're right. <laughs> I'm
1: good, yeah. It was very nice to get here. It was nice to see some of the film, um, and to see it on the big screen. It's the first time that I've seen it.
0: Good. So this is your second film poem, um, "The Green Hollow." Um, I have it on good authority recorded the highest audience appreciation rating for a BBC One programme for five years. So uh, no pressure with no. to provide okay. all people. So what is it about the film poem form that, uh, that appeals to you? Um,
1: it, it's a form that grew out of something that I first wrote for radio. Um, and so it grew out of a, a very much writing both for the voice and for the ear. And it's still, as you can see, it's very much um, a literary form. And I'm not just saying this because she's sitting here. I think it only works with a certain kind of filmmaker. Um, and when we made The Green Hollow... The reason I wanted to return to this idea of it's it's a kind of verse drama, it's sort of um, a lyrical reportage, I suppose, a form of poetry documentary. And I think that's a very important aspect, the fact that it starts with these uh, documentary interviews. I mean, I did over 70 hours of interviews for this film.
0: And were they face-to-face interviews? Or did you get people to write their
1: stories down? On the whole, it was face-to-face. There were a few that I was helped with by some um, uh, people who went off and did some further afield. But on the whole, it's really important, especially with this style of work, to turn up and to sit opposite people. Um, Because however far the language and the imagery might travel, it's those original voices and those original experiences and thoughts that absolutely give the foundation of this kind of work. But the reason that we wanted to return to, well, or to um, experiment with it, with The Green Hollow, is that it is a work that is particularly well-suited, I think, to combining the choral and the individual experience. Um, And so, when this anniversary was on the horizon uh, Pip and I sort of saw the opportunity to um, um, approach BBC Wales and to ask if we could take this form to this subject which I should say was still a a huge risk and I'm still incredibly um, uh, uh, grateful that BBC Wales allowed us to take this form because of course the Green Hollow is about an, an event, something that happens and here you're engaging with an idea so it was still Quite an adventure, and we still went into it not knowing how an awful lot of it would work
0: actually. With um, the Green Hollow, as you say, it was an event in a particular place in a particular time. With this, you're talking about seven decades of history and a national service. I mean, did you know exactly where you wanted to begin with it?
1: Oh, I knew everything exactly. No, I, <laughs> I knew hardly anything. Um, and that's the other reason why you spend that time doing the interviews and doing the research because you go into this kind of thing with your own ideas and perhaps some preconceptions, some of which remain and others which get dashed. I think it's really important that you have to present what you find. Um, I guess what I did know from the start is that I wanted to try to create um, a lyrical bridge that I supposed shortened those 70 years. So I wanted to tell the story of, of the founding of the act, which is an extraordinarily inspirational, um, a political tale of this combined vision and action. And I wanted to build a bridge between the birth of that idea and the experiences of the staff and the patients of the NHS now. So I did want to very much for it to remain in that world of the idea. And so I suppose as much as possible to, to try and paint a philosophical and, and emotional map, I suppose, of the NHS. But you, you talked about the scale. Um, and I was probably about, I, I was coming to the end of the research when I realised that the NHS operates on this extraordinary double scale. It is this huge societal idea. And yet for all of us, it's deeply personal. It it cares for the people that we love. It cares for our bodies. Um, and so that was a real breakthrough moment when I realised that it had to have that intimacy about it as well. And there is a very personal thread for me uh, running through this story, which at first I was trying not to write about. But then I realised I sort of had to, and also should.
0: And Pip, if we come to you, you were presented with this poem. How do you even begin to bring it to the screen?
2: Um, You read it, and you read it, and you read it. um, And then it's a matter of recceing. So we went round the hospital. Um, And then, because it being Neville Hall Hospital was so important to... the the origins of it and did you know um, did you
0: know straight away this is where it has to be set well it's it has very to
2: personal be. to Owen that it's set there mm-hmm. it, if you like it, that that is where it's of its roots and so we did some wrecking in the area around um, and so those beautiful mountains offered um, a thinking space um, we didn't we knew that the middle section was going to be quite claustrophobic and inside the hospital and we wanted it to be very real. Whereas, for the first um, part, we wanted it to have some lyricism and some, thi- some breathing space. Um, and also, we went for coffee in a, an art shop, and above there, there was this um, uh, art class. So, it was fortuitous, and, and when you're making something, you've got to let the accidents happen. So, we found that place, we found the mountains. Um, and then it was very important that the last section, which is the more meditative, philosophical, discursive section, that we wanted to find another place for that. And so we we um, wanted to get a historical hospital visualised. Um, and I think one of the, the moments where uh, the porter, brilliantly played by Michael Sheen, enters that... Historical space is where we start colliding the past and the present. Um, We very consciously didn't want to use archive. We didn't want to use um, old photographs. We wanted Bevan's spirit to be represented by all of the actors.
0: I was going to say we don't actually see an Adrian Bevan. There's no pathé footage. We don't hear his voice, but we hear his voice through the actors. Yeah,
2: yeah, and that was very central to the concept that we were living and breathing his ideas as we do today, rather than it being a biopic or here is someone pretending to be, Bevan Because how do you represent that other than in beautiful words?
0: And as far as the structure is concerned, I mean, you don't just start seventy years ago. You start in a cave at the beginning of human history, in the way <laughs> when the first person hands, you know, stretches out a, a healing hand. But um, it's framed within one day, and also, you know, in the life cycle. So there are there is a definite structure to it, whereas I guess when you started, it could have been very sort of open-ended.
2: Well, I mean, we started off with three parts, didn't we? Yeah, Mm.
1: yeah. yeah. Um, The three-part structure had worked so well in The Green Hollow that that was something that we both felt would instinctively help us. Um, But you're right, from quite early on, I wanted wanted those three sort of parallel structures going on. So there is exactly that. There's the cradle to grave, there's the life cycle, and there's the birth of an idea, and then the living of an idea, I, I, and it was about, I suppose, and so much of this does happen in, in the edit, uh, um, as well as on the page. It's about finding that delicate negotiation of how you of how you balance those three structures so that they still feel organic. For some reason, the uh, 24 hours in the hospital just felt very natural from the get-go, and the first time that I spent some time in the hospital at night, I, I, I kind of knew that had to be represented as well, you know, because these are places that never stop. Um, I mean, just to say something about your question to Pip, um, uh, Pip says something to me which I think is the bravest thing that any filmmaker has ever said to me, in that she said, just don't worry about the images, just think about the words, which, you know, for um, a writer is a fantastic thing to hear, but I'm aware that it also passes on a certain amount of blessing but quite a large amount of curse when I hand over this thing that is sort of a script but is essentially a poem.
0: And apparently it takes around 90 minutes to to read the poem. It's longer than the the film, so you had to kind of cut it down. That must have been very difficult for you.
2: Yeah, the first cut was two and a quarter hours. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And sadly, in this incarnation, which is the commissioned 60-minute version, um, we've had to cut some characters and sadly some performances. Um, But we are in the process of cutting a 90-minute director's cut... Um, that we want to, work, we're trying to raise the money to get it up on the big screen because we'd like to tour it um, and for more people to see it. Mm. But yes, it's, it's difficult, but you do it gradually, um, trying to get the balance of, of the film.
0: And just briefly, you were working in Neville Hall Hospital, so you were literally on set, as it were, in a working hospital. How difficult was that, just on a practical level?
2: Um, we tried to be as low key as possible. We tried to, to be as responsible as possible, um, and when we were told to stop and go, we stopped and went. Um, but we—it was so important. It was like a a, a relationship, a, a collaboration with the hospital, because they were so keen that we portrayed all of the corners of the hospital. You any traditional medical drama, you have your surgeons and you have your wards and you have the A&E entrance, but we wanted to show the fabric of the hospital and we were supported in doing that. Um, y- you know, We were in the morgue, we were in the spe- special baby unit and the, those, the parents of those fragile babies gave us permission to film because everyone um, heard that we were doing a a love letter to the NHS and wanted to give to that gesture.
0: So you had extraordinary access. It's probably unprecedented.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, we're very grateful.
0: You are talking about hospital medical dramas there. Suzanne, if I can come to you. You're probably best known as uh, the character Tess in Casualty and Holby, mm-hmm. a fictional nurse. How mm-hmm. different was it for you to prepare for this role?
3: Um, interestingly, I I was wasn't looking for a character. I read and read and read my character's words. Um, I've, yeah, I've made <laughs> the character, but not character. the character. The words of the, the real people who, who said them. And I just wanted to see how that landed on me. And so I just concentrated on the words really. And then I remember I had a, a lovely uh, direction from Pip um, just to guide me, to give me a little focus. And, and she said, think of Shakespeare. Think of the way the poetry comes through, even though it's very lyrical. And so I took my attention away from trying to create a character and just looked at the poetry and then the, the humanity of the character, that the, the um, as, as you say, the, the sort of very specific intimate comes through without having to search for a character i felt
0: and your own mum was a nurse mm-hmm. how did that influence you
3: well it's interesting because if i hadn't been in this i would have been gutted but partly because it, it to me you know i know it's been described as a love letter at, you know having now seen it because this is my first time it's it's almost a thank you and I feel for me personally and my family, my mother um, literally started training at 16 and then went through a whole professional life as a nurse and was a senior nurse by the time she retired. So I feel this, the NHS is in my soul. It's in my DNA because, of course, I've got to know her, f- friends, all uh, most of her working colleagues. And then, of course, having to, you know, going on to work on casualty for nearly 13 years, it's never left me. So, um, yes, I would have been gutted, but I would have still championed it. (laughs) Um, Yes, it's, I mean, what can we say? It's intimate, but then it's at the same time very
0: universal. And Eve, why did you decide to take up this role? I know you've worked with Pepper now before. How can I not... How could I not be um, a
4: part of a film that reminds my generation and my children's generation that the NHS wasn't always there and it's not a given and that it's, you know, frightening that it could be diluted and it may not be there in the future? I felt it was my responsibility as a human being, as a mother, to be uh, a part. Of this very important film and to be a part um, as a very important voice and it's going back to what Suzanne is saying is that we didn't have characters we had a voice we all have a voice and our voice should be there to save the NHS and I think this is what this beautiful piece does.
0: And your character is slightly different in that like Michael Sheen you're, you have a narrator role yes that's quite a tricky balance isn't it? Yes, it it is,
4: but it's, um, you know, myself and Michael were loosely narrating it, but um, they had all the historical facts and uh, they had all the bullet points for us to be able to explore the the real stories in and amongst it. So we served as
0: um, a guide, I think. Well, it's uh, an all-star cast. I'm just wondering, Pip, how difficult it was to, A, bring people on board, and, B, get them together at the right time. You filmed this in quite a short space of time, comparatively.
4: Pip, I'm going to pass this on to you, but I warn you, it's very sweaty. Thank you. (laughs)
2: Um, Remarkably... um, ..very, very few people said no. Um, some people by return said yes just by hearing it was by Owen and that it was about the NHS. Um, Jonathan Price was about to fly to Rome and he said, I'll give you three hours next Thursday (laughs) in London. And so we went to London and filmed with him for three hours and found (laughs) that Celia could do the same day and and Michelle. Um, You know, Celia... We had an hour and a half, Michelle two hours. And that that discipline of the shortage of time just means that you work in the moment and it gives it a freshness. And because we've been doing this with Green Hollow and a lot of the same cast have come together, that act of speaking into the lens has become comfortable. The first time around it was less comfortable, but now it's become comfortable um and i'm sure you would say it's quite an experience speaking into the lens as opposed to with the the lens off your eye line
3: Uh, i don't know we we haven't spoken about this but
2: um it goes against
4: all rules really doesn't (laughs) it i mean it's the first thing you do is if you catch lens you go oh sorry we're gonna have to go again i've looked straight down the lens but it's um it's what paper said with the green hollow it was it was strange, it was slightly uncomfortable looking down lens, because I guess it's what presenters do and you're very comfortable with doing it, but we are... It's strange to begin with. <laughs> is it? <laughs> it we the same yeah. first, very kind of unusual, mm. but when it came to this, it was, it helped in a way, I mean I can only speak for myself, but I felt like I was really, I had to, we have to connect with the public on this, we have to talk to you almost like a radio piece where you speak into a microphone and you're talking to one person and you're being intimate. That's how we approached um, Talking Down the Lens with this film is that it became even more intimate and I think it served it.
0: I hope it served it beautifully. It felt like it did. You mentioned radio. When I watched the first time, I thought this would work really well on radio. It's a play for voices and although the imagery is, is absolutely beautiful, uh, did it ever cross your mind to, to write this as a radio play?
1: Um, no, <laughs> I don't think did. no, I mean, I guess from the outset, this was very much conceived for TV, but I was able to have that confidence because we were, we were working off the back of the Green Hollow. Um, I think it was with that, I probably had even more anxiety about the form. Um, although, as I said, that, that's not to say that in the middle of things, sometimes we found ourselves in very unfamiliar territory. But you're absolutely right to mention radio again, and play for voices and you know, I think someone else one ha- once had the concept of a first and a second voice as a narrator's, I don't know. Um, another short Welsh poet somewhere. Um, so, but again, that idea of voice, even though I should stress, it's a very, it's a very interesting grafting of voice between those interviews um, and my own. And it only really works if you allow yourself that sort of, that lyrical license t- to let go of the interviews. Um, And what I've noticed with uh, both pieces and the previous piece that I mentioned that actually was for radio called Pink Mist. um, uh, Pink Mist. Sorry, I've obviously been in Spain for too long. I can't speak (laughs) um, English anymore. Um, Is that at the opening of these, it tends to work that this is um, the words of the people I spoke to in my voice. And as the piece um, opens up, it increasingly becomes uh, my words in their voices and so it, it's an interesting dance between the writer and, um, and those original voices so yeah voice is key to it all and that's what it's so interesting to hear Pip and the cast talk about not playing characters because how I think of it is that it is passing on of these voices and with each person, with each stage there's a process of distillation and change um, but for some reason that's how the process has to work um, and at the end of it what you hope is that even though there's a whole lot of language and even ideas that weren't in those interviews, um, in terms of ownership, this should feel like the film of those NHS staff and patients who I spoke to. And we'll be screening it back at uh, Neville Hall tomorrow, so I guess that's when we'll find out.
0: (laughs) And I was just wondering, Pep, we don't see any real-life NHS staff until the very end of the film. Why did you use that device right at the very end?
2: Um, That was the gesture of giving it back to the people who had shared their stories with us. Um, that's our thank you. That's our handshake. Um, and that's our celebration. We had to give them the final beat of the film. Um, and I think if we'd used that earlier, that would have been diluted. Hopefully it's a, a powerful beat at the end.
0: Well, I'd like to open this out now to the audience. I wonder if anybody has any questions that they'd like to ask the uh panel. Oh, we have someone at the back.
1: So um, I think the question was, did I ever uh, consider using verbatim as well as using the the poem? Um, It's interesting because some people describe this as being verbatim and obviously verbatim meaning exactly word for word, it's not. But I think of it as being verbatim in terms of experience. and the short answer is no, because really I suppose what I'm interested in is that is that real experience, that real thought, those real observations are coming into contact and into that chemical reaction of art. And I think that's what artists and writers are there for, is to uh, create a pattern, to create a shape of something. Um, I've seen lots and lots of great verbatim theatre, but if I'm honest, I think you know, if there are three levels to be taken to, they quite often only take you to the second level. And to go that that extra stage, for me, that's where I suppose I would, as a, as a writer, as an artist. You want the magic box of artistic tricks, and that's not just as a writer, but also what Pitt brings in um, into this as um, a filmmaker, and the score, and the song, and the cast. Um, so I guess for the last few years, what I've been interested in is, is um, inheriting almost that taste of verbatim. Um, Do,
0: is any of the poem direct quotation from those interviews?
1: Oh, I mean, it really is it, it's a very um it's a very complex mosaic really, yeah, no so absolutely um if there are people here or if there are people at a Neville Hall tomorrow who I spoke to, they will hear phrases, they will hear words um uh so absolutely they are there um but I guess that's what I'm saying it's about having the license to use that as you wish and to use it alongside a piece that will be informed by those interviews. How I think about it is that you kind of, you imagine into this research. Um, And it's interesting because we saw this with the Green Hollow as well. It was some of the speeches that were entirely um, invented. My imagination was some of the speeches that people from the community of Aberfan felt were most kind of theirs. And I suppose that's when this form, which I'm not saying it works perfectly all the time, but that's when it's working at its best. So I guess I'm interested in that in that taste of verbatim and that foundation of verbatim, uh, but then seeing what can be done with that in terms of shape and pattern.
0: Gentleman halfway up.
1: Um, Quite a beautiful uh, love letter back to the NHS and somebody who's worked in the NHS for most of their adult life. I'd I'd say thank you to you all. uh, there was quite a worried tone about the future uh, towards uh, in part three o- of the film, and I was wondering what you had heard, what you'd learned about the future direction of the NHS from from making this piece. What your what your gut instincts are telling you about the future, but also where you think things could be. Yeah, thanks. Um, I guess there's one really important thing I should say is that we're all aware that there are three different NHS's in Britain, NHS England, Wales and Scotland. And that was one of the things that was a slight frustration to me that I felt I couldn't get involved in that in this kind of a piece. Um, Partly because I wanted it to be about the philosophy and the thinking of the original idea. So um, a good amount of the concerns that I came across and the people I spoke to were quite often from experiences of working in NHS in England where there was a general sense that there was more of a risk of uh, creeping privatisation. Understaffing was one of the first things that nearly everyone spoke about. Um, The crisis in recruitment. I finished by asking everyone I spoke to, will the NHS, as we understand it, being true to its core principles, still exist in 10 to 15 years' time? Almost exactly 50% of interviewees said no. And that was a real shock. And one of the most common phrases I heard was this idea that the NHS logo has the potential to become a kite mark, um under which uh the ethos and the ideas at the heart of what we understand as the NHS could potentially be eroded. Um obviously there were concerns about systemic underfunding, um a lot of concerns around you know cuts on social care uh, uh, year on year for the last decade because of course it's the NHS that that picks up on the hit on that. Um Lots of very, very serious concerns around Brexit in terms of research, in terms of recruitment, uh, in terms of the risk of American health companies when we're negotiating in a post-Brexit world with, with um, America. That's going to be a huge part of the negotiation um, discussions, potentially. Are those health companies wanting to have a slice of this market? I mean, I never wanted this to be histrionic or overly uh, dramatic and I hope it's also celebratory and I must admit in, in my personal experience I had a very strange experience in that when I would tell people I was making a film about the NHS nearly everyone would say oh god that must be hard to make chief that must be hard to do that must be tough and yet of course it wasn't it, you know I mean every day it, it felt inspirational and that's when I sense this gap and it is it's a narrative gap in terms of the experience of the NHS for so many people and the story that we're telling about it. And of course, when things go wrong, those must be mentioned. But nearly everyone I interviewed said that the tide of bad stories in the press is a constant erosion upon the morale. And I think what people were really worried about is that if you drip feed a story that actually this idea doesn't work anymore, it opens chinks where you know other ideas, other systems might be felt to be a more... A potential way forward.
0: I think we might have time for one more question. Gentleman here.
1: Hiya, (coughs) Dioch. So, uh, for me, it was really emotional watching. Um, So, I was born in the hospital. Uh, My my, my dad died in the hospital. Uh, My uncle is still a a porter in in the hospital, just like Michael Sheen. Um, I felt slightly slightly sad that there was more Valleys uh, language in there, should we say. Um, But I thought it was amazing that you got Michelle Collins to nail Kutch. That was effing impressive. Um, I wonder though, Owen, if you will take Michael's lead now and pivot your career and become a crusader for retaining the NHS in the way it should be and and ditch the pen and, and go on a moral crusade. <laughs> oh well, thanks, Steve. Um, um, uh, just the, on that note of Michael being a porter, and you asked about filming in the hospital. There were many fantastic things about filming in a living, breathing hospital as opposed to on a TV set. And one of my favourites was that Michael was so embodying his porterishness that um, that we heard about uh, um, a couple of porters having a chat and saying, "Who's a new porter then? No one told me about him. Is he going to take my shift?" It's <laughs> like there you are. And the Valley's accents is is interesting because Pip quite rightly said that we partly chose Neville Hall because, exactly like you, I had my first memory there uh, when I fell out of a window at the age of two. I've had grandparents die there. Our second daughter was born there. But also, it is the hospital that it, it is the most immediate um, descendant of the miners' welfare hospitals in which Bevan gained that experience, where he saw that uh, communal action can lead so effectively to the emancipation of the individual, so it was important in terms of its link. Um, And of course, it's entirely, well, not entirely, but there's a huge amount of its staff come from Bevan's homeland as well. But we did want a range of accents because we wanted it, hopefully, to speak to all of Britain and we wanted somebody working in the NHS in Sheffield or Scotland to feel that this was in their story as well. Um, To come to your actual question, I think think the best thing I have to offer is probably, I hope, the pen and the page. Uh, but as, as Eve said, I mean... It, I certainly feel a lot more knowledgeable and a lot more informed and a lot closer to what the NHS is and what it's like to work in it today, but how I feel about it hasn't changed. I hope in my personal life, I've always been um, a crusader, and I hope through this film... I mean, you no-one know, no wants to make something that has its finger kind of wagging at you out of the screen, but yes, we want this film to uh, provoke as well as inspire, and we want it to be um, a, a campaigning film of a kind because it comes back to that concept of wonder. It's about reinvigorating the wonder of the idea. So I hope in that way we're making some sort of a contribution in the direction that you're suggesting.
0: Owen, thank you. Well thank you very much to our panel, Owen Shears, Pip Broughton, Suzanne Packer and Eve Miles. Thank you so much for coming out on such a hot evening to watch, to provide all people with us this evening. Um, just remember it's broadcast on Thursday evening on BBC One Wales at nine PM. And we're very pleased to say also then on Network on BBC Two at eight PM on Saturday, and you can of course catch up with it again on BBC iPlayer, but for this evening, thank you very much. Nostar.